0: hear the word of the Lord from 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that is before us, your word which governs every aspect of our lives. As we consider how your word teaches us how to govern your body, which is the church, I pray that you grant us grace, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that we'd be encouraged and strengthened in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this morning, we're going to take a, a one-week detour from the Gospel of, of Mark to, to walk through the biblical requirements for what it means to be an elder or deacon in our church, because next week, we're going to begin a nomination and a year-long training pro- process to install our first local elders and deacons as a church. As a church, we're still very young, we're two and a half years old, and we don't have local people that, that govern the day-to-day aspects of our church. We have a what's called a temporary session or uh, which is a temporary group of men that govern the church who are elders in other churches in our denomination in the Northwest. And that's you only know, do that for a little bit of time because it's ideal to have those people governing your church that are in your body, that know your people. And so we're we're taking a step towards that really important thing, which is to be governed by our the people within our church. And so as we consider this important moment in our church, I thought it'd be good for us to spend a Sunday thinking on these requirements from 1 Timothy 3 and, and what they mean. And you know, this is going to be more teaching than preaching probably this morning. I'll try to yell at you at the end or something. I think that's what preaching is defined as. Uh, it's, it's a joke. Um, but I know, it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> um, so this might be a little longer than normal too. Um, so just set your expectations uh, rightly. But as I you know, was thinking about leaders in the church in general, and whether, whether that person's a, a pastor, a paid person, or a lay leader in the church, I can't help but think about you know, all the, the stories that, that reach the news cycles about ministers and people who lead the church who uh, fail miserably, and whose downfall is very public, from infidelity to ab- abuse of power to lacking gentleness to substance abuse, the list goes on. And even as we mentioned that, I'm sure very, various stories and names of events that you've seen and maybe experienced yourself kind of pop into your mind. And with those various stories of, of poor and examples of poor leadership, I think there's two ways that we can go in our response to that. Either we, we give up on the idea of needing leaders at all in the church and in, you know, in a quasi Marxist way, you can think that having leaders and authority structures is the actual problem and so we need to do away with those structures and have zero leaders in the church. And there's some traditions that go that route or people can swing the other way and, and go even more totalitarian and with leadership structures. Everything is top down, you just get told what to do and you do those things. You know, in the West, the totalitarian side of things is not usually the ditch that we fall into I think our, our ditch is that we tend to minim, minimize leadership and its role in our lives. We tend to minimize the idea that we would have to submit to anything that's outside of what we might want to do. Uh, when We're very distrustful of leaders because of our experiences, because of what we read, because of what we see, and because we grew up in a world here in the West that is so individualistic. How dare you try to tell me what to do about anything? And so we never really actually submit to leaders in our lives. I mean, we often say we do just until we disagree with them and then we find new ones to kind of submit to, which isn't real submission or real leadership. And to compound this problem, because of all the chaos that I think we see in in church leadership and how it's done so poorly, less 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 and less men desire the roles of elders and deacons. Because we can think that by nature of having that role, you're gonna turn out power hungry, or if you want that role, maybe it means you're power hungry and you're gonna make the same mistakes as those who have gone before. And I think this is actually beginning to leave a leadership vacuum within the church in the West. One that we might not feel in our day-to-day lives here, but you know, the stats I'm reading are true, and I think they are in talking to different seminaries and enrollments and things like this. Uh, In in 20 years, we're going to be in a a great hurt as a church if things don't change. We're going to have a leadership vacuum. But we know the church needs leaders. You know, from from Adam to Jesus to the apostles, it's always had had men, elders and deacon type of people to govern God's people. The church and the people of God have always needed this. And in this letter to 1 Timothy that Paul writes, I think we get a beautiful vision a beautiful vision that we should aspire to of what leadership could and should look like in the church. And it's not perfection. And it's many times our problem with leaders is we expect them to be something that they can't be. It isn't being Jesus. You know, there's only one Jesus, but it's being someone who loves Jesus so much that they have actually experienced transformation in their lives. You know, and First Timothy helps to, I think, give us a lens to help identify who these men who have been who these men are in our own midst who have been so transformed by the gospel that they're examples to us and and people that we want to emulate. We want our children to emulate. And so as we as a church, you know, next Sunday evening, begin this process of nominating elders and deacons as a church, Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time meditating on this passage so you can know who should you nominate for this role. What should you be thinking about as you nominate for this role? Because this is one of the most important things we can do Is as people of this body is, is nominate and uh, vote for qualified men. And so just one quick aside that I want to mention before we dive in that I'm not going to have time to really get into in the midst of the body of the sermon, but it's something that I need to mention is, barring from other men who have preached from this text, which I'll do a lot this morning, is that, is that in our church, we follow what we would call the biblical model that only men can be ordained to these offices of elder and deacon, We do appoint women to work alongside the elders and deacons as needed in different situations, and I'll talk about a little bit of that later. But this kind of gender restriction, of of any restriction, is often met with confusion and even anger, especially in our day and age. And I understand that many people in our culture, maybe some of you even here this morning, would object to this restriction. We don't like being told that we can't do something because of how we're born. But I just wanted to say two things about this, First of all, is that all of the elders of the Old Testament, without exception, all the 12 disciples appointed by Jesus and all the elders elected by the church planted by the Apostle Paul were men. Uh, the elders and deacons in this passage, I think, were, were supposed to be men. And when the Bible has such repeated themes like this throughout Scripture... Uh, then we can look and, and, and trust God and his wisdom to obey that what he is saying is, is true and actually what's, what's best for us. And I think it's a real blessing uh, when the men of our church take their faith seriously and lead in that faith. And they take the, seriously the responsibility to lead the church and their own families in their faith. However, I think, you know, historically, women are often the more spiritually minded and spiritually sensitive uh, people in our midst you know, I feel this in my own home. And many of you this probably feel this in your own homes, in your own marriages. And they're often even maybe more gifted or smarter than men in theological matters. And you might wonder, well, if they have the gifts and they're good at this, why not let them serve in these offices? Well, simply because this is a role that God has called men to, to take responsibility for, to take responsibility for protection and oversight in the home and the church. And and It's important that we trust God and his wisdom on these things more than our own wisdom and desires on, on these things because when we trust God and even, in, and even in areas of confusion, even in areas of distrust, that, that that is where we're led to life. I think it's important that we don't let men, the men of our church, abdicate the responsibility that they're called to. I think this goes back to even the curse in the garden that men are, are quick to abdicate the responsibility. and I think we, we can't let them do that. Because it's a real blessing to, to the, all the people and the women and the children of a church when the men in their lives spiritually engage and lead. This is the first thing. Secondly, and more quickly, the Bible has a lot to say about how essential the women of the church are to ministry. Just because there's a restriction to the office doesn't mean that there's a restriction to the level of, of equality or importance uh, that someone has. I mean, the Apostle Paul talks often about the woman who labors side by side with him. And as a church, you know, we desire to make sure that every area of our ministry or leadership is a joint labor of the men and women of our congregation. And just because women can't be in an ordained office in our church doesn't mean that they don't have real ownership and exercise real leadership in important areas of our ministry. And so as we begin to build these things, these are things to consider. Um, and if you have questions about that topic or any other topic that we're talking about, um, please talk to me afterwards. These aren't easy things to wade into. Um, but I'm happy to do that with you. So as we consider this important stage of the life of St. Andrews, I think we're going to find three aspects to, of what to consider um, for becoming an officer in the church. And they're these, the calling, the character, and the work of an officer. So first, the calling, which is the question, how do you know if you're called? I mean, I think I'm called, but am I, am I called to this? And, you know, calling in the Christian church can be a bit ambiguous Um, It's not like Jesus writes you a letter and says, hey, yeah, you're called. You should go do this thing. Or he picks up the phone and actively calls you. Um, So how do we discern calling? How how do we know if if we're actually called to this work? Well, I think here in this text, we find two aspects to it that are really important, which is external and internal call. So first, you see the the internal call in verse 1. It says that the same is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If anyone aspires or desires into this task, you desire a noble task. He's talking about aspirations and desires, which these are things that come from within, that come from your own heart. But I I think even today, people tend to overthink this and they'll say, well, how do I know that I desire to do it? (laughs) How do I know that I aspire to this? Um, Well, let me just ask you plainly. It's as simple as this. Is this something that you want to do? It's simple. If you have a desire to oversee, to shepherd God's people, then this is the beginning of a desire and aspiration. It's a noble task. But you might wonder, well, how do I know if I just wanna have that power and control, you know, or if I actually wanna serve and love others well? Well, I think another part of desire and aspirations is do you love the church? A friend of mine put it like this. He says that having this desire and aspiration means that the church becomes your hobby. Right after your service to your family, after your vacations, you want to spend your extra time overseeing the church. This is where you're going to focus your extra time and your energy, your, your desires to lead by serving. So the first question is, if you want that, this is the, the first aspect of what it means to be called. This is that internal call that you might have. But of course, it can't be enough just to sense this internally. People think God tells them all sorts of crazy things that I don't think he is. It isn't enough just to experience these things in our own minds or in our own hearts. But the confirmation needs to come from those on the outside as well. And this is where you see here, I think, the external calling. This is something that comes from those around you, those who recognize and confirm that internal sense that you have. This isn't an individualistic endeavor. This is a, is a corporate endeavor. And we begin to see this in verse two. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then again, in the qualifications for deacons, you see it similarly. You see here in verse 10, and let them let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And this word for above reproach and blameless in the text are actually the, the same the same words. And this is kind of the external side of what people are looking for, what those on the outside should see when they look at you in your life. This doesn't mean you ought to be perfect. Right? Jesus is your only perfect leader. If you expect your leaders to be perfect, you will be severely disappointed in life. Right? Any officer, including myself, believe it or not, still struggle with sin. Uh, but this is about being well-respected inside and outside the church, which you see here, even in verse seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the question is, do the people around you actually agree with your assessment of yourself? Do they look at your life and do they see you as, as a someone who's blameless, as someone who's called to this work, as someone who's respectable? You know, in a different line of work, I used to hold music auditions for people who wanted to lead music uh, in the church. And uh, like any task like this, sometimes people vastly overestimated their abilities. And they would come and they would play or they would sing and you'd be like, ooh, man, bless your heart, you know? <laughs> and then you have to steer them. Have you thought about volunteering in the nursery? I think, I think you might be really gifted at that. Or you know maybe they, they were close, but they weren't quite there, and so you provide some training for me we need more training to get there, but I love that you love to do this. Let's train you. Or sometimes people actually underestimate their ability. They come in kind of sheepishly like, well, I kind of like to play, but I don't know. You know, I shouldn't. It's like, no, just sing and play, and then they're amazing. You're like, you're clearly gifted at this. You desire to do this. Let's, let's put you into this role. And so, it, but it was in that, that audition, that moment of testing, that we actually were able to discover that together. I think this is one of the aspects to external calling is that you're actually inviting an audition, so to speak. You're inviting people to come and to judge you, to come and judge your life. It's an audition of sorts. All right, to say I feel called, to say I have a desire to be an elder, is to invite those on the outside to come and examine you, to come and examine the fruit, to examine the readiness. The the idea of external calling is a very vulnerable thing. And as a community, I think we have to be willing to have the truth spoken to us, even if it isn't what we want to hear. Even if the answer is no, because we aren't building our own kingdoms, we aren't building a kingdom in our own image, but in Christ. And so we can trust his wisdom, even when the answer to us is no. Even if it's something we really want, and the answer is no. I think this is especially true with our leaders. Because if you are unwilling to be examined, then I would say you are not called to this office. And it's okay to be told no in this process. You know, even in my own life, I've been told no more often than I've been told yes. And if you are here, and if you're called to this office, but you're told no, it's actually an opportunity for you to grow, right? To grow in godliness, to grow in humility, and to, to work on the areas in your life that others see are weak. This is a good thing. This is a mercy and, and a grace to you. To be put into the office of elder deacon without being qualified and called appropriately is not good for you, and it's certainly not good for the church. So the, the internal and external callings work together to help affirm whether we're called or not. So if you don't feel a desire and others think you should be an officer, you probably shouldn't be one until you have an internal desire to do it. Or if you have a desire, but others don't see the, the gifting or the readiness, well, then you shouldn't be one until your gifting catches up with your desire, until your readiness catches up with your desire. Which leads to a question, well, how do you as a congregation know how to, how, whether or not how to, how to judge if someone is ready? How do you know if someone is actually ready for this task? Well, it's based on their character here. This is where we see here in 1 Timothy, the character of an officer. Second, we see the character of an officer. You know, when you read through this section of scripture and also in Titus, when we get this list of qualifications of what to be an officer in the church, it's overwhelmingly focused on character. It says very little, thankfully, about the quality of preaching and teaching, just as you have to be able to do it. Um, uh, But it says a lot about the character of the men that are supposed to lead. We begin to see this in verse 2 to 3. It says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober minded, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. These are character traits. And what is character? The character is the the fruit of a life that loves Jesus. Listen, you can't just make yourself gentle. Like if someone says, hey, you struggle with gentleness. You can't just, "Mm, okay, am I gentle now? You can't just force yourself into it. Uh, You can't force yourself to be hospitable. These are things that have to happen to you by Jesus. And when your life is marked by love of Jesus and you've experienced the hospitality of Jesus and the gentleness of Jesus, these are the things that transform you to be hospitable, gentle people and so on. And so the elder has to be someone who's actually experienced these things themselves, experienced these things in Christ. And these things produce character. And so the elder has to be of high character, a person whose life is marked by the love for Jesus. You now, I think Peter uh, gives us a good summary statement of, of what this looks like in, in, in 1 Peter 5. He says, This, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, speaking to leaders, not domineering over those in your cha- charge, but listen, he says, but being examples to the flock. Ultimately, an, an officer is someone who's an example. A, a friend points out that a good summary of the character traits mentioned here is that they're examples to the flock. Their lives are meant to be modeled for us, right? These are people you want your children to be like when they, when they grow up. These are examples of who we want our church body to emulate, right? And if someone does not meet those qualifications, if they're not ready for that place yet, if they're, then, then I would say don't nominate them because they're not ready. And I think we get similar language speaking of the deacons here in, in verse eight. It says this of deacons, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, right? Deacon, I'll get to this more later, is a word in Greek that, that we get the word doulos, which means servant. And then I mean, the simple way we distinguish the deacons from the elders, that elders tend to care for spiritual needs of the church and, and deacons care for the physical needs of the people and of the building. And so deacons too are meant to be of high character, not double-tongued, sincere, not hypocrites, not addicted to much wine because they're going to be dealing with people probably that have addictions. They can't be greedy because they're going to deal with helping distribute, gather and distribute money, right? They need to be honest people, people that have been so compelled by the love of Jesus that they have no need to be greedy. They've been so transformed by him that they have no need for greed or for addictions because they find their fulfillment in Christ. And both of these lists of characters give us something to look at to see if a man has this kind of character. And uh, you know, in, in both of these lists actually point to uh, one of the primary ways that you can know whether or not a man has this character, and it's their families. He says, in both the, the, the qualification for the elder and the qualification for the deacons, look at their families. Look at their marriages, look at their relationships with their children. Their their personal life, if you're single, this is a hard thing. But the home is the one place that you cannot hide. You know, don't ask them, but I guess you can. My children and my wife can tell you where I struggle with sin the most. They know it better than anybody. Uh, It's it's easy to, to look pious on the outside. But you can't hide at home. So the question you should ask is, do the people closest to this person, do they love Jesus? Have they been nurtured, into the faith. Again, that doesn't mean perfection because we're all on different journeys of our faith and life, but, but generally, how does this family look? So nominate men who have a deep love of Jesus, who have, who have walked with Jesus long enough to experience this deep transformation. This is why you, you, you shouldn't uh, be a recent convert in this because it takes time to experience this level of transformation where it's, where it's touched every different aspect of your life. It takes time to mature in Christ, which leads to our last point. So we've talked about right, the calling, the sensing internal and external confirmation. We, we've, we've talked about the character, that you're, you're not domineering, but a good example of a gracious life that is, that is a blessed family. And, and lastly, we're gonna talk about the work. Right? It's so you're called, you have good character, but what's the final piece of this puzzle? Well, it's the work of the officer. And this, you know, verse in uh, verse 10 tells us here that let them be tested and let them serve as deacons as they prove themselves blameless kind of gives us the idea that, that we shouldn't nominate people who think, yeah, if I had that job, I would, then I would do the work. But we should look for people who are actually already doing this work and nominate them. This is where we find the work of the officer. And the work of the officers come from the work of Jesus himself, Again, Jesus is the one king, the one true leader of the church, and he, in divine mystery, invites his people into that work to help govern his people. And I think there are a lot of ways that we could describe in his work, but I think most simply, the work of Jesus was the work of word and deed, right? Teaching the gospel, healing souls and bodies, All right, And this is the same, same ministry that, that Jesus gives to his apostles, that the work is of word and and indeed, in the beginning of the, the church, when it's being established in Acts chapter six, we find a split in this work of word and deed, where the, the, the apostles at the time were not able to care for everybody's physical needs. And some people were, were being um, neglected at the table. And, and so that they, they split off the work and they gave the work to what was the first group of deacons to care for the, the, the widows and to help feed them. And so, uh, and so now we have the elders focused on word and prayer, and, and the deacons are focused on physical deeds. And this is primarily how the work is divided between elders and deacons, and you can even see it in our own church. Some men in here are really gifted at caring for the physical needs of people, and some are more gifted at caring for the spiritual needs, and both are necessary, and then, you know, I would say that the office of elder actually had another split within it um, later in the, in the life of the church because teaching was demanding of the office of an elder. We actually see this in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So even in that text, you begin to see that there's a distinction between those who rule and those who teach and preach. It's the idea that there's our elders who rule and those that preach and teach. It's the same office, same requirements, but different functions within the office because of need. And for this reason, our church has what are called teaching elders, which is what ordained men who go to seminary like myself and like Pete Williamson and the, the pew we're teaching elders in the church who can administer the sacraments and do those things. And also we have ruling elders, people who are nominated and elected amongst the body to help rule and govern this specific church, the lay leaders in the church who you're nominating. And so we find the the role of the elder and the deacon coming from the work of Jesus' word indeed. but practically, what does that work look like? And this is where we're going to kind of get into the weeds a little bit, but this is where we find the work of the elders here in verse four to five, that he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And there's two verbs in that section that are alluding to the governing both of the family and of the church, and that's of uh, manage and care. And the word manage comes from the word that means rule, and the emphasis of this word rule is the aspect of protection of the people. So practically what that means is that elders are the men who protect um, against false teaching. They confront false teaching. They, they call people to account for their sin. They They... To provide discipline in the church, to discipline people who aren't repenting of their sin, helping protect the word and the worship of the church. This is what it means to manage. But this is actually combined with care here. And the only other actually place that this same word for care shows up in the New Testament is in the story of the Good Samaritan, or the Good Samaritan who came upon a wounded man in the street. And what did he do? He cared for him. The elder is to care to bind up the wounds of the flock, to apply the balm of grace, to apply the word of life. So, elders should be this amazing combination of someone who's able to both confront falsehoods and immoralities, confront the snakes in the garden, so to speak, as well as people who can be gentle, people who you can trust with your deepest wounds. Right? It's easy to just be brash, and our world will. Uh, Praise you for your brashness at times, right? To be confronting things all the time, it's easy. I think it's also easy to just be gentle, to never confront anybody for anything. That's easy. But a biblical elder here can do both. Confrontational without being quarrelsome. Gentle without being weak. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And this is what we're looking for. This is what we're called to be like. This is what an elder's work is. So what about the work of a deacon? Well, in our book of church order, who someone in in this room calls the big blue sleeping pill, uh, it, it tells us that the office of deacon is one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts 6, right, the office of deacon was first formed to care for the widows who were being neglected. So for us, we translate this as caring for the physical needs of the needy within our own community. So congregational care and benevolence are the focus of the deacons. Or as some people call it mercy ministry. So if a family loses a job or needs groceries or housing, or if there's something physical that's happening in your life that you need help with, the deacons would be your first call. And this is combined with the physical care of our building, which needs lots of care. So keep that in mind if you're considering, if you're feeling called to be a deacon. So deacons care for the physical needs of our community, while the elders focus on the spiritual needs. And of course, there's always overlap between these two, because our physical needs are spiritual needs, and our spiritual needs often have physical sides to them. So there's there's always overlap. So the elders and deacons work together in word and deed. To be called to a deacon is not a lesser calling. It's not like you're a deacon first, and then you graduate to eldership. That's not how we think about it here. We think about it in terms of call. Some people are called to be elders. Some people are called to be deacons. And... uh, they're, they're both overseeing the ministry that was passed on by Jesus and caring for the flock. So these are the two offices we're nominating men to uh, next Sunday evening. And I think, you know, there can be various reactions to reading 1 Timothy 3. I think one of the primary ones I, I hear from people is, well, of course, I'm not these things. I still struggle with picking anyone on this list. How could I possibly be in this office of elder deacon?" Well, this is a tricky question. Because some people who say that are right in their evaluation of themselves that they are not ready, right? But then other people aren't. And this is where you go through this nomination, you go through this process of testing to see where you are. And I th- uh, and you know what's interesting about Paul himself is that in chapter one of Timothy, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Right? So how can we govern ourselves when Everybody struggles with sin. Paul, who wrote this letter, said he was the foremost of sinners. That's because of what Paul says actually before he calls himself the chief of sinners. He says this. He says, The saint is trustworthy that Jesus Christ came into the the world to save sinners. This is the gospel. That we can only have godly leadership if we find people who know their need of Jesus like Paul did. Paul himself, who said, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Right, Christ is, I mean, Paul is not telling us that he's perfect or that elders need to be perfect, but that his life is an example to follow. That his life is a life that we ought to imitate. It is an imitation to us because he knows that there is no goodness in himself apart from Christ. Paul knows the riches of the gospel. He's tasted them. Christ himself is the head of the church, not Paul or any apostle or any leader to come after. So we're not looking for perfect people. There aren't any. And if we expect our leaders to be perfect, we're gonna be severely let down, but we're looking for men who love Jesus, men who love the gospel of Christ, men who are the chief confessors of their sin, men whose model to you isn't their own goodness, but is their own dependence on the goodness of Christ. May God raise up and continue to raise up men like that in our church. May we be a place that trains up godly men and godly women And may the Lord have mercy on us in this time and give us a lifetime of godly men to help lead as Christ led. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your mercy, for your grace, for your love for your flock. You love us enough not to leave us to our own devices and governance, but you love us and you want to see us governed well. As you love the church, so your leaders are, are to love you. We pray that you would do this work, that you would stir in the hearts of men, and that you'd raise up godly men to guide and to lead as you lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.